millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm Enquento Wolf. We're off to the Spitalfields area today to unlock the secrets of a single house. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a long throw from your front door. You, uh, your hackles raising when uh, mention was made of the definite article. What's the issue here? Well, I, I actually try not to let my hackles rise. Um, it is townhouse. Almost inevitably, people put a the in front of it, and I, on the whole, ignore it now. But every now and then, my hackles do rise slightly. But it's not a major issue. Um, we could locate ourselves very easily by uh, positioning ourselves close to uh, Bishopsgate and Spitalsfields and Brick Lane and uh, that, that part of the East End. Quite interesting, though, I think, to locate ourselves historically first of all. Well, this is in an early 18th century building built in about 1720, but probably a refurbishment of an earlier building, probably a late 17th century one, and it's right opposite Hawksmoor's Christchurch, so we have an amazing view from our window, probably a unique view in London, looking straight out onto the stones of Hawksmoor's church. And of course it's in the area to which a lot of Huguenots arrived um, in the 17th century and through the 18th century, living here and weaving here. And the place itself is cluttered with gorgeous objects. It's a wood floor, kind of a raw floorboarded, very old wooden building. And there are vases and gourds and statues and pictures because you're, it looks as though you're vending antiques. It started off as an antique dealer. I've been here for 15 years and I initially did 18th century antiques and you had to press a buzzer to come in. But the whole area has changed so much and I have changed with it. And now in the first bit of the shop to which you walk in, I do a mix of things. So books, pottery, soap, bits and pieces that I like, basically. And then behind there's a gallery which has um, antiques and paintings in. And downstairs we have a coffee shop. 
And I've sampled some of that this morning already, and I would recommend the place just based on that brief encounter. Just on the fabric of the building, and we'll move into the historical angle of the area and the building itself. Just in terms of the way it's constructed, I've noticed this with a few places I've put my nose into in this area. You've got the building itself not particularly deep, maybe 20 feet or so, and then the building comes to an end, and there's a very, very short courtyard, uh, perhaps 8 or 10 feet, and then uh, another building out the back. Do you know what the setup was here? What was that used for? Um, well, this the the build the front building is the 1720 building. It retains most of its original panelling. This floor is actually a Victorian floor, but the rest of the building has its original floor. This building to which you referred behind was built in the mid-18th century by two doctors who lived here, and that was their surgery, hence the lantern roof, so that they could see what they were doing. Fortunately, it doesn't retain the original floor, but the, <laughs> the entrance behind, um, there used to be an alley down the back there and you come in the rear of the building and they operated here literally from about 1820 to 1870 father and son and rather extraordinarily the son was called John Jackson which is my father's name who was also an antique dealer and is my trading name so when I discovered that, I kind of felt I was meant to be here. <laughs> and it was pure coincidence? A pure coincidence. I didn't know until I actually kind of started researching some of the history of the building. The way that you've described the place as was 15 years ago doesn't sound very appealing at all. Yeah. It was a picture of what it was like at that point, and particularly why, on the back of that, you decided to move in here. Um, this building had been the, the market cafe from about 1942, uh, run by... Uh, brother and sister until they left in 2000 by which time they were fairly elderly and it really looked inside like a 1940s building upstairs was pretty derelict you had to wear a hard hat to come and have a look round it and the front part of the shop now was the cafe the ceiling had fallen in at one end and the the surgery or my gallery now behind was their kitchen but it was in a pretty awful state no work had ever been done on the building really so it had never been properly wired or plumbed the roof had never been redone and was being held up by acros so it was quite an exciting and quite a lengthy project but really really interesting all the panelling was hidden behind plasterboard so a structural engineer and I had a really fun day he had a tool that you could poke in behind the panelling you could make a hole behind the plasterboard poke it through and look it had a little torch on the end of it so he and I were poking in all these little corners and holes to see what was behind and amazingly most of the panelling was here and you had bought the building by that point I'd bought it yes well, oh, I, well that's, a, that's a bit of luck then isn't it, it was, no no judgement of course <laughs> <laughs> I thought the I did surreptitiously stick my finger through a hole as I walked round and I felt one of the um, styles of the panelling um, but the only bit of the building that you could really see so I'm going to walk over to it here is these balusters here move these pictures cluttering in front and um, when I saw those I just fell in love with the building I know it's mad uh, the building behind the surgery was so obviously going to look great with paintings and stock in it that it's actually my husband who was brave, I think. <laughs> I should say that the uh, banister rail that we're looking at here is a bit raggedy, not quite woodworm eaten, but uh, you, you get the sense they'd move in if you turned your back. No, not quite. It, that's the, it's, it's called patina, actually, and this is the original paint finish on it. 
never dis old stuff in an no, antique no, store. No, definitely not. <laughs> I'm speaking as somebody who spent another coffee. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move through to the back where there's plenty of foliage, and we're stepping down into a courtyard. We've got the sweeping sound effect machine plugged in. <laughs> this is Peter. Hello, Peter. And the wood store here suggests open fires. Uh, are you still allowed to do open fires? I should uh, should quickly add that we have you can uh, have wood burning stoves which are okay to use in a smokeless zone. They have a little, they have something removed which means they burn very very quickly, so that it um, is all the nasty things that you don't want in the atmosphere burn off before they get outside. So I understand. Because I was, I was thinking with the uh, cafe with the ceiling falling in and then the wood store here, it seems like the area that regulation forgot. <laughs> well, no, not anymore, not. I think. I think perhaps for, for part of the 20th century, but definitely not any longer. We barely touched on the general ambiance of the area 15 years ago. Can you describe that? Um, almost impossible to describe how completely different it was to what it is now. It's changed completely. There were two or three places to eat um, there was Pizza Express on uh, Bishopsgate, an Italian restaurant on Brushfield Street, and a f- couple of porter cabins in the market that did feed. A couple of pubs, not the plethora of bars and clubs and um, places to eat and drink you see now. Prostitutes outside, drug dealing outside. Um, I think a lot of people thought I was completely mad coming to the area but it, I just fell in love with the building and I felt it would allow me to do what I wanted to do. Which was what because I'm imagining that walking train might easily be deterred by a phalanx of sex workers. No yes <laughs> perhaps but I, my parents were antique dealers so I'd grown up in the antique dealing business and swore night was something I would never ever do and then inevitably did and we'd done kind of the London fairs for quite a few years and then I had a shop in Columbia Road so I already knew the area and I already had a clientele I think that was the key thing so it meant I could move here have a have a buzzer that you had to press to come in but still have clients who would come across and see me venture into this the wilds of the East End at that date. Ah, so this is a bit of an adventure and a bit of a secret. I very much liked the idea that it was a secret and I had very little signage initially and still have less than a lot of people think I should have because I like the idea that it's an act of discovery for people. People were brave enough, certainly in those days, it now has an open door, but in the, initially you had to press the buzzer and a lot of people didn't know what they were coming into but that seemed to me to be a bit of theatre that I quite liked. On a very practical level, uh, all this gentrification and modernising that's been going on right throughout the East End over the period we're talking about, I'm imagining that must have thrown up a lot of opportunities for stuff to become available. Clear-outs of uh, the, the old buildings to make way for a pret-a-manger. Um, it is, of course, a, a dilemma here. I mean, there, are, there is endless pressure on these buildings and the shops... For, because everyone now it's changed so much everyone wants to get in on the act so I think a lot of the bigger stores are, are trying to come in here but a lot of the units I mean the physical buildings are small scales so they don't really allow for these bigger units which puts great pressure on knocking things down and rebuilding to allow um, rents to go up bigger units and to get the bigger brands in here so it's a bit it's a constant 
battle, I think, for people here. Also, to try and keep the independent stores here, because what a lot of people who come to the area love is the idea that you get these quirky one-off shops and what gives the area its atmosphere. So you don't want completely one or completely other. You want a a mix of the two. It's quite difficult to get that balance right. There's a big development going through or planning at the moment that that, which there's a lot of opposition uh, on Norton Folgate and there's a big Save Norton Folgate campaign. Yeah, and if I've understood correctly, the ambitions of the people who are hoping to save Norton Folgate, they're campaigning for a more modest development that's more in keeping with the general aesthetics of the area. Yes, because what the proposal, as it it is currently, um, plans is to demolish the whole footplate of one particular block in Norton Folgate that includes some absolutely beautiful uh, Victorian warehouses, and they just want, want to destroy all of the warehouse but keep the facades whereas I think the the campaign argues that it's perfectly usable you could make it usable for startups independent businesses lots of tech companies have said they'd be happy to use it as it is so I think they're just trying to get a more balanced um, development for there because that particular block includes the footprint as it was if you look at a 17th century map of the area and compare it now with on google satellite you can see the same footprint you can see the same little alleyways and it seems a huge shame to to wipe that out part of the history of the area Feels like things are at a, a bit of a tipping point in a few places around here. Actually, Brick Lane, with which I've got some connection, Brick Lane, there is a huge raise in rent going on among a large number of small businesses there, mm. effectively forcing some of them to leave the area. And a lot of them are exactly those kind of independent businesses mm. that have brought the area its cultural richness. And I, I mean, it seems obvious that within a few years, the whole thing is going to look like any high street anywhere. It's the problem, isn't it? Because all of these little shops are independently owned by individual landlords. And so, of course, the landlord sees his next-door neighbour getting a high rent. And then, understandably, he wants to get a high rent as well. Um, There's no legislation, or I don't think there is, on controlling commercial rents. So landlords can double or more rents as they wish. Do people come to you with tempting offers? I have had a few, but I'm resolutely here. I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position that, that this is mine, so I'm not going anywhere <laughs> at the moment. But it is, I, I don't quite know what the, what the answer is because this area needs to keep that mix of big and small businesses. As we're right on the edge of the city, or slightly beyond the edge of the city, both in, in terms of the financial district and the old definition of the city of London. How much bleed is there between this bit of town and that bit of town so close to each other? Uh, Lots of city workers come and have lunch around here. So I think, you know, if you work in the city and then you come come across here for lunch, it's a great place to walk around at lunchtime. And the area around the market, they've made specifically kind of interesting for people to come and have lunch. There's a place to sit under a canopy. Sometimes they have music there in the summer you know, it's aimed at city workers and people coming out for lunch. But I actually think it, that's good for the area because we get so a lot of tourists here now, obviously, which is something we never used to see here, which is, of course, good for the area, but you don't want it to be all tourists. And I think the city keep and the, and the way that businesses kind of gear themselves to, to the city, to some extent, keeps the area grounded. 
and, and not totally a tourist trap, which is what I think it would become otherwise. Mm. So I think it's a good thing, that mix, and it's interesting. One group of people who drift over your threshold on a regular basis are Huguenots. I guess for somebody who doesn't know where Huguenots come from, they they might have come across that word in any history of the East End. My understanding is that Louis XIV, he liked his dancing orderly, hence we have ballet, and he had a zero Huguenot policy. (laughs) Yes, they were... uh basically thrown out of France or in effect thrown out of France in I think it was 1684 had to leave quickly I think with very little and about 50,000 of them arrived on these shores a lot of them were silk weavers and came to this area of Spitalfields because there was a pre-existing silk uh, weaving industry here the existing industry was mainly ribbons and lower quality wares and the Huguenots brought a huge expertise and settled in this particular district, uh, lived in a lot of these houses and sold a lot of very fine silks to the court so you had the merchants here and the designers and the actual weavers It's interesting when you say there was a ribbon industry I don't imagine there's a huge ribbon industry these days but was there really that much demand for that much silk? Well I think there must have been because if you look at 17th century maps of the area there were a lot of tentagrounds in this area and the tentagrounds was where they um, stretched the wares don't ask me in too much detail but my understanding is it's what they were kind of um, hung out to dry on and stretched and in fact the site where on which the church was built was a big tentaground Ah, OK, now that raises the delicious prospect of the Hawksmoor. Now, of course, the Hawksmoor hasn't been uh, there all the time. Do you know uh, much about that? Because we know, we know, of course, that Hawksmoor himself was a, an occultist. Yes, I don't know much about that side of it, but it was built as part of the projects to build uh, 50 churches in London, uh, which was planned around 1712, I think. They never completed all 50 of them, but the church here, Christ Church, was completed in 1727, I think. And a lot of the houses on this street were were built as part of that once people realised the church was being built, the streets were developed by a lot of little local developers or London developers who came along and built their two or three houses. What are the practicalities of being based opposite a church? Get lots of people coming in asking when it's open in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Oh you're one of these kind of okay so anybody who's ever worked in a bookshop knows that you immediately become the information centre for the area. Same here? I, it is, we are becoming the local information centre, uh, which is good. I don't mind. We get. A, I mean, there's. I think the reason a lot of people come in is because this is in an, one of the early buildings. Most of them are private houses, so you can't go into many of them. So inevitably, we get a lot of footfall to see panelling, and um, what these old houses look like. I'm very, very, very happy for people to come in and have a look. I don't mind at all. And what are the descendants of Huguenots? I mean, are they still are they still Huguenots? Um, yes, and apparently uh, some... I can't remember what the proportion of people who live in the southeast of England, but some quite high proportion have Huguenot blood in them. And in fact, after we came here and bought this building, we discovered that my husband has Huguenot... Well, not only has Huguenot blood in him, but they lived further down the street and got married in the church opposite in 1756. So that was quite strange. <laughs> yeah, I know. Lots of coincidences. The Huguenots who come here, what are they, what are they looking for, do you think? I think they're looking to try and connect with their ancestors, to try and get a feel for what it was like for their ancestors to live here. And a lot of them come into the shop because, as I said, there aren't many places to go. And uh, inspired by the number of Huguenots, we got... 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I had the idea for the Huguenot map that I've done, which you can see in the gallery behind we're going to go and take a squint at that in just a second. The, the Huguenot diaspora, having arrived here, having been kicked out of front, or having scarpered, landed here, established themselves. How did that follow through? Did it disperse to some degree, or was there an opportunity for them to return? I think the Louis XIV did revoke the Edict of Nantes, but in fact most of them had settled down here. They integrated very quickly um, and were very successful here. Within a short time, one of them was a governor of the Bank of England. A lot of them became um, bankers, some soldiers. So they, they were very successful in the, at that point. What's the point of going home? Well, we're going to try and step over the entrails if any are left there from the medical practices here. Fortunately, no one. Oh, good, OK. And the map that we see in front of us, Huguenot's in Spitalfield, it's uh, six or seven feet wide, fills up the wall quite nicely. And we see local streets in sepia tones and names on white medallions. Yes, I had the idea of creating a map of the area based on the 1750 map of London done by John Roke and last summer we invited descendants of Huguenots to come in and pin their families on the map. Um, There's something about this act of pinning which I appealed to me. I just uh, like the idea of you know families coming in and placing their ancestors physically rather than doing it in a digital way and we got a huge response and um, lots of people actually wrote it on a little disc with a thread which they pinned into the middle of the map and then the artist Adam Dant who drew this wonderful map came along and transcribed all the information onto these nice white neat medallions and um, we've had it photographed and printed and uh, you can buy it now smaller version (laughs) (laughs) how did you handle that event people pinning the stuff up was that a, a mass pinning going on or did people drift in one at a time we had it up here all last summer so so it was up for two to three months and we kind of got the word out there in various forms in fact we didn't need to do very much the huguenots descendants loved the idea and picked it up very quickly um, are, they, are they all in touch with each other I think a lot of them are. In fact, we put one or two in touch with each other based on their family names. We said, oh, did you know that there's this other person? Obviously, had to get permission to put them in touch with each other, but we have put a few people in touch with each other. And we now have 350 names on the map. And in fact, you can see that 
they first arrived in the area around because we got the dates on there as well so they first arrived around Norton Folgate and then as the church was built and the streets around the church were built they move they drift over in that direction and then gradually by the 19th century as weaving becomes more difficult and um, the industrial revolution has taken effect and weaving moves to Manchester and north and the Midlands they start taking up other um, careers they become undertakers and bakers and all sorts of different things well, they don't go with the they don't go with the drink, no, they? they don't go with it but rather interestingly as the men start doing other things it's the women who carry on the weaving in the 19th century and it becomes almost like a it seems to become like a cottage industry for the for the women to carry it on in a small scale way and that's been very much thrown up by this map which we uh, plan to put online in the end I've got to put latitudes and longitudes against all of these street names and then eventually it will be online and you'll be able to run through it time wise so you'll be able to see where they were living in the 17th century and then what happened to them through the 18th century within this area so you'll be able to see the movement of people and, and what happened to them what they, what they became now we know from having explored Dennis Seaver's house that, at least in the example there, the silk weaving business was by no means glamorous. It was uh, up in the attic and pretty pokey, and lots of people all crammed in there. Is, is that the case with the majority of these people? Yes, certainly up in up the attic here, um, there is only a very small window, and if you there is a the cutout for the high loom is still there. So they would have been up there perhaps in the winter with a fire going, with candles for light and a tiny window and people working in it. So how they, um, how they managed with, um, for kind of light and their, you know, the state of their lungs must have been pretty awful. So the East End is a, a bit of a sweatshop at this point? I think it must have been, yes. And, and in fact, you, you, know, you can see that the, the merchants and the designers were the wealthy ones and the actual weaving in some cases was farmed out to less well-off people. When we think of the emigrants arriving in the US and being processed through Ellis Island, you hear all those stories about people's names being changed because the American guard couldn't spell some uh, Polish surname. A lot of them became uh, kind of anglicised in that way or had other things done to them. And it's, it's quite difficult to trace family history because of some of those randomised changes. You can only imagine it must have been pandemonium, this enormous influx of people. Well, the, the, the air must have been throbbing with the French language and the sudden sound of looms. Yes, it's interesting because, as I said, they integrated very quickly. There doesn't seem to have been any particular resentment towards them. But in fact, you know, it's French, it's not that far away. French had been spoken here a long while before. And I think they were probably very similar. They also seem to have had a very strong work ethic. So they ran their own businesses, got down to work very quickly, and I just think they integrated really well. I don't really know why. I feel like there might historically be a lesson there for us in some way. Well, possibly, yes. I mean, I think it is quite... But I think it was easier because it is a very similar culture. So it's not as, as different as some of the cultures arriving today are. Should we look elsewhere in the mm. uh, in the, <coughs> in the townhouse? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll refer to the Londoners. Oh no, we're going to be back after this word from our sponsor. We have teamed up with Audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. 
All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. The Sound of London. Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolf. Listen free every week on your favourite podcast platform. Subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf and we are in Townhouse. We're next to Christchurch Spitalfields. That'll have to do is a description. We're right on the boundary between the rich part and uh, historically the poor part of the East End. With me, Shana Atkins, who is the proud owner, and she's currently exhibiting her delicious cake. <laughs> yes, we make all the cake here, or almost all the cake here. We do get some from Luminary Bakery, who are a charity on Brick Lane. So when we need further supplies, when Hugh and I have munched through all the cake, we send out for reinforcements but on the whole we make most of it ourselves i just caught the tail end of a real life huguenot disappearing out of the door uh, before we came down here i don't know what i expected somebody in sort of 17th century french garb um, <laughs> but but no this is a chap in a polo shirt what was his purpose here um, I think coming to see the map, and, and uh, they do also like talking about their ancestors. But it's nice, it's, um, it's interesting, and everyone has a different story to tell. And his story was what? Actually, his story was quite interesting, because he seems to have some photographs, early photographs, of the building, that, which I'd be quite interested in seeing. And his family have obviously been in the area for quite a long while, and the Grues are somebody um, who, uh, on our map, who started off in this area and then moved further out into Bethnal Green, which a lot of them did. And a lot of them have stayed in the area. There there are some families which have been here from the late 17th century and still have family members in the area today, which is quite amazing, really. Two thoughts come to mind. One is that you clearly never get any work done. (laughs) Well, it is quite... Actually, if I have work to do, I tend not to do it here because it's... (laughs) people do like whether they're Huguenot or not people who come in here I think it's that the atmosphere here is quite it's very domestic it's quite intimate so people tend to chat it's not somewhere that people walk in and walk out which is good I think people enjoy it is that generally good for business um well one of the reasons for changing is that because I was getting so many people coming in and ooing and ahhing and, and loving the place when it was 18th century antiques it started to be a bit like a museum so I had to find a way of making it clear it wasn't a museum it is very definitely a shop and so I had to provide something for everyone who came in uh, and have the door open and because we've just come downstairs it means I have to have staff downstairs so that prompted the move to coffee and cake providing the coffee and cake in this panel kitchen so that even if people came in just to have a look at the building then they might sit here and enjoy a coffee and homemade cake do you get people hanging out here and uh, laptoping and all that stuff that's quite difficult I, i i don't mind during the week phone calls is what i don't like because if it's disruptive for people down here but i don't there is wi-fi here people can come and use a laptop down here at the weekends it tends to be quite busy so you might get pushed out of the way by a huguenot (laughs) 
<laughs> the other thing I realised that we haven't pinned down, and I wondered, uh, given the level of exposure that you've had to real-life Huguenots, what do you know about what it actually means to be a Huguenot, as distinct from uh, any other Protestant uh, bent? Um, I actually don't know very much. As I'm not a Huguenot, I don't know. But there, I think it is a badge that people like to have. I think it it's almost like a club. It, of course, was a huge industry for family history and everyone loves finding out about the, the, their own past. But the Huguenots, I think, the Huguenot name confers a, something else as well, an added kind of badge what is that, do you think, a sort of a, a romantic uh, sense of the past? I think it's perhaps slightly nostalgic. But what's wrong with that? People really enjoy it, and it people connect with the past. I'd like to dig for some nuggets. You talked about the removal of the ugly boards over the top of the beautiful ones that form the fabric of the original building. Over the course of the renovation of this place and the exposure of its early fabric, what else did you find? Actually, remarkably little, I was hoping. (laughs) Particularly here, we dug down quite a long way in order to get to the drains and found nothing, not even a clay pipe. And a lot of people have found Delft tiles, which we use to back the fireplaces. And we've got faux Delft tiles in the kitchen. Didn't find a single piece of a Delft tile, sadly. Miserable. Found a very nice bit of fabric, uh, a wallpaper. It's a cut velvet... um, wallpaper upstairs um, which we've left in situ having had a good look at it so that was quite nice but but very little sadly that must be very disappointing as an antiques expert um i suppose it was but because we'd found virtually all the paneling and all the floorboards uh, that was nice so I couldn't really complain. Uh, we're going to talk about exhibitions in just a moment, the exhibitions that go on here, because as you say, it's not merely one thing, Townhouse. What I didn't realise, it's not something that you'd associate with the area at all, I think, but there's quite a flurry of activity around gardens. Yes, once a, once a year, or as part of the Gardens Open Day run by the National Garden Scheme in June, half a dozen of gardens in the area are open, and... They are incredibly popular. A lot of people come to look at them. And there's a wide range of gardens from small ones, quite formal ones, quite modern ones. And I am, or the shop is, the official place for coffee and cake. And I cannot describe the day here, what it's like. We have a three-line whip on all staff have to be in the kitchen downstairs. Actually, it ran really well this year. But from the moment we open till the end of the day, we are serving coffee and cake. But it's actually great fun because people are in a very good mood. They really like coming to see the gardens, finishing off with coffee and cake. It seems to me you could pass through this area in a different direction every day and never see anything green. Well, that's, that's I think, the why these particular gardens on the open day are so popular because they are very secret and you would have no idea they're there but there are some really beautiful gardens here um we're talking about privately owned gardens so people open up their houses and you can get a very quick glimpse of the house as you walk through to the garden which i think is the other reason why they're popular um so it's a sneaky open house too it's not really an open open house but it's a sneaky let's have a look at as much as i can as i pass through the house (laughs) They started, I think uh, this was the third year, and it's become, I think, some of the most popular London gardens on that day. But it's a fun day. Could you give us uh, uh, the, the cream of the crop, if you got to, indeed to see any of these gardens with things being so frantic here? No, I wouldn't dare, because I know most of the owners. <laughs> <laughs> They're all equally good. What about your exhibitions here? 
well, one of the other ways in which I've evolved here is to do much more 20th century British art. So I have my own curated exhibition here once a year, usually in November. But I also have a range of other exhibitions um, by local artists. In October, I normally do a photography exhibition for Photo Month. So we just have a range of probably about four or five exhibitions a year out in the gallery at the back. We know with anything that involves people submitting creative work you tend to end up with a mountain of things to take a look at before you can decide which one should go on the wall given how busy you already are how do you handle those uh, sort of issues well i was very naive when i first started so anybody who said oh i'd love to exhibit here i'd say oh send me an email and of course i got as you can imagine bombarded with emails and it's such a quirky place though it has to be something everything will look good here Um, It's just that kind of place. But it has to be something that works in the space. Plus also the aim really is to sell, so it has to kind of work with the people who come in here. Uh, I suppose also encouraging new people to come in, but it has to fit with the the ethos of the shop. So I am um, slightly fiercer than I used to be on submissions and I have a group of artists who are the ones that I mainly exhibit now but still open to suggestions she says cautiously (laughs) (laughs) I think I've spotted my winning technique is to perform some photography of interest to Huguenots yeah oh yes that would be brilliant Huguenot photography surefire winner as soon as I figure out what that is, then I'm on the case. When can people uh, get themselves in front of those pictures? I can't remember the exact dates in October, but we have a website and we have a Facebook page and information goes up on there. We also, in the shop, usually do a newsletter. We'll do one for the autumn so you can pick one up and see what's coming up. Well, thanks for having us today. Listen, I insist you get down here and taste uh, the coffee. Fiona Atkins, thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Fiona Atkins. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.